International Court of Justice in The Hague, Israel has been accused of acting on a genocidal intent in its war in Gaza. Elsewhere in the Middle East, American forces have retaliated against the Houthi attacks on shipping in that area. These events and, and a couple of others are tied together by a thread that may not be obvious to, for, at first sight. We're going to talk about those two events as well as a couple of others, Ukraine's war against Russia and Taiwan's recent elections and the reaction of the Chinese government. What connects these events is something really profound. It's an observation that Ayn Rand made many years ago, and I think its truth is just reinforced every day by the spectacle of these events. It is about the power of morality in human life for good and for evil. That's our topic today, and we're going to explore these developments. I'm Ilan Jurno. With me today is Onkar Gatte. Welcome, Onkar. Hi, Ilan. Why don't we talk a bit about how we see these as related and the, the genesis of this conversation? Yeah, what I see is if you look across foreign affairs and our so-called foreign policy, particularly America's, but the, really the free world's foreign policy and, and conduct of foreign affairs, what you see is the good on the defensive. It's reactionary, unprepared, uncertain, hesitant. And the consequence is the growth of evil around the world. And if, if you think of some of the, the, the major issues and conflicts today, this was certainly the case for Ukraine, that the free world was taken aback, that Russia would evade, and that, that taken aback even after they've seized the Crimea, um, but it's still, they, they, Putin won't go this far. And it's a scrambled, unprepared, and I think ultimately unsatisfactory response to that. But it, but it, part of it is it's reactive um, and there's no leadership is, a, is a thinking of what there should be in the positive that's absent there. If you think of Hamas and Israel, Israel was unprepared, taken aback by the scale an atrocity of Hamas's attack, and now is in a reactive, defensive war. But part of it and was that they're unprepared. And if, if they're similar, and now they're being uh, hauled to the, the International Court of Justice to defend against uh, charges of genocide or genocidal intent. And it's, again, it's, re it's a reactive, defensive response. We'll mount our defense in court. And then if you think now, and, and, and if you think of, this is after the US has been at war in Iraq for years and years, you've got the Houthis in Yemen who are um, jeopardizing global commerce, global shipping, global commerce, uh, attacking ships. And, and it's again, the response is unprepared defensive, a few bombings in retaliation, and would you stop or we might bomb more? And there was even, I mean, there was a month or two, it's like, will we even do anything as ships are being attacked? And, so, and that, th there's a reason why I think we're seeing this, but I think one of the things that should just stand out is how reactionary and defensive and unprepared it is. 
Why don't we dive in and, and unpack some of these developments? So let's start with the genocide hearings at the International Court of Justice that happened last week. So the case, provide some context, was put forward by South Africa. And there's a long document that people can go and read laying out the, the, the claims and the allegations about Israel's intent here. Uh, and just to sum it up, it's the idea that in retaliating against Hamas, what Israel in fact is doing, according to South Africa, is seeking to annihilate the Palestinian people as a, an ethnic, racial, some other kind of collective uh, group of people. And so this is part of their case. And Israel has been on uh, it, top form in, in this respect, but it's scrambled its best people. It's brought experts on international law. It sent them to The Hague to represent their case and, re and respond. And again, I, I recommend that people, if they're interested in this, read the, the statement from South Africa and then listen to or read the statement from one of Israel's leading uh, uh, representatives, Tal Becker, who's an expert in this field. And it's, it's really interesting from a number of perspectives. And we'll get to some of what this reveals connecting to our theme about how this is illustrative of Israel being on the defensive but I, I want to um, draw out some of the things that people have said about this in opposition. So a lot of people have been critical about this. Our perspective to this is not that we're the only ones critical of this whole hearing. I think a lot of people are outraged by this and they see it as an obscenity. I think what many people are missing, if not most people are missing, is the, the profound nature of what makes this obscene. So a lot of people have pointed out, well, why isn't Hamas in the dock? Why is Hamas, given what it did on October 7th and, and since then in killing 1,200 people and in, in the rapes and the atrocities and, and so many things that are just unspeakable, why isn't it being hauled into this uh, hearing? That's a, that's a legitimate argument. And then other kinds of claims people are raising about, well, why is Israel being singled out? Many more people have, have suffered terrible and even worse fates than the Palestinians in Gaza in Syria during the civil war that is still going on. You can keep listing off countries where there's at least something comparably bad happening to civilians and maybe even worse. And yet Israel is being singled out. And I think that is a, is a valid observation to make. There are many other things that are, we could list off. And some of the statement from Becker that I mentioned is about this is polluting our understanding of what genocide actually means. Again, it's a valid consideration and I think this is all right and people should be reacting to it with a very strong uh, opposition and, and, and a negative uh, assessment of both South Africa for bringing this forward, for the hypocrisy that is evident in the hearing itself. I think that's missing a number of big uh, problems here. I think the, the fundamental one is, as you put it earlier, that this is it's an example of Israel being on the defensive. It is... I've been arguing and we've been arguing since October 7th and before that, that there is no gray area here. I think there's no question Israel is the victim in this assault that Hamas perpetrated. It is in the right. And yet it is being raked over the coals here, having to defend its own retaliation. And I think that is an inversion. And part of what I see as the deeper problem that hasn't been noticed is 
that is an injustice. The, the sheer fact that it has to go and defend itself and to give credibility to South Africa's case, to give credibility to this court, the idea that this court should even hear a case like this, I think is already lending legitimacy to an unjust, and in, I think in this case, an arbitrary claim against it. And in this sense, it's, it's in enabling its own attackers by giving them this level of legitimacy of saying, yes, we will send our experts. We will go on the offense. We will go on Twitter. We will go on every possible channel we can to show that we are living up to these international laws and we are following the, the past agreements. I think what's needed is to question these international so-called laws and to question these agreements and to question the legitimacy of this hearing at all. Why is it that you should uh, even show up? I think a much more powerful response to this would be to boycott it, to withdraw from it, and to say, we can't take seriously any so-called tribunal, anything that uh, this international court claims to stand for. You cannot claim to have any moral stand if what you're doing is taking seriously this case from South Africa and ignoring Hamas's position and everything else that's happened up till now. So to me, this is a it, showing up is a worse uh, action on Israel's part than it would have been to boycott this and to speak out vociferously against the injustice of the, sh the whole idea of having to go and defend itself. The, the one way to put it that in, in a way that people can't, are uncomfortable with, and, and you can say they can't grasp, but I think this episode is making it, there's something there that they're uncomfortable going towards, which is that these organizations are designed to do this, that they're designed to be um, able to attack countries like Israel. They're designed to be able to attack the good. Any organization, and the UN is the paramount international organization like this and the the international court of justice is just a, a wing in effect of the un they're what they're designed to do is to equate evil regimes and good regimes and we're all just deserve an equal place at the negotiating table equal vote on these tribunals uh, judges on these courts and if you have an organization that equates the good and the evil and says, well, they're basically the same and they have the same standing, all that does and necessarily does is undermine evil, uh, sorry, undermine the good and uphold and strengthen evil. It makes it possible for evil regimes to pretend they're as good as good regimes and that, that we can voice criticisms and bring objections and so on. And it's like, as you said, it's like the UK bringing an objection to something uh, the US is doing. You might take that seriously. You can't take seriously that Saudi Arabia or uh, South Africa are bringing objections to what you're doing. If anything, it's probably good that evil regimes are criticizing you. But to have an organization like the UN and all its um, branches and, and um, divisions, which the fundamental is we will not distinguish between good and evil. We'll equate the two. And then to be surprised by, oh, but this is used to undermine good 
countries like Israel and to prop up and give prominence to countries like um, South Africa or Saudi Arabia and so on. That's what it's designed to do. And unless you will face that fact, this is its very nature, it's what it's designed to do, it's its inevitable result. You can't, you can protest about, oh, how can it do this and how can this happen? And isn't it outrageous that uh, South Africa is bringing this kind of case? But if you look at the whole history of the UN, this is what it is um, there to do. And it's why countries like Russia, China, are interested in maintaining the prestige of the UN um, because it enables them um, to, to survive and prosper and it whitewashes them. Yeah, and I, I, I want to criticize Israel here and I, I do this with advisedly because I think they're in a difficult position. I, I support them basically because I think they're in the right and I have been arguing for them to defend themselves vigorously. So this criticism is put in that context. So I think Israel is in effect complicit with its own attackers insofar as I think for, this is a good example of it, this case at the International Court of Justice, but it, there are many other cases. And I think the, the conduct of the UN generally is another one where I think there isn't any self delusion about the character of these organizations among leadership in Israel. They know that the UN in particular singles them out, the, you know, the Rights uh, Council of the UN does this routinely. It's a well-documented phenomenon. And the, as you put it, I think the, the institution is rigged against or is, is designed in such a way that you can use it against freer good countries. And I think Israeli leadership has known this for many years. A lot of intellectuals have known this and exposed it. And yet there is a premise that is Israeli policy has been acted, has been animated by which is that they have to always live up to international law. They have to go out of their way to demonstrate that they are a good citizen of the, of the world. And so I think in this case, they, they, if you watch some of the presentations about how they're going to defend themselves at the International Court of Justice, there, there's a sense of pride in, we've got these top experts, they wrote the book, here's the dream team going to defend our, our reputation. And when they talk about the conduct of the war itself with respect to the laws of war, so-called, or something else we've talked about in other podcasts, I think Israel does go out of its way to comply with these uh, strictures. Let's bracket that for the moment, but I think the, the point that unites these is that it treats these international bodies and international customary laws as legitimate and tries to live up to them. And in doing that, I think it reinforces the system that is geared against it. And in that respect, it has a kind of lack of self-esteem because I think if it really respected itself and understood that it stands on the right side of these issues, it wouldn't rush to go to the UN and knowing how corrupt the UN sit there and, and try to convince people who are not interested in being convinced that Israel's in the right. And it continually does that. And it, it, it's, it's sad to observe it. And I think the, the example of the uh, case at the International Court of Justice is an excellent example of this. So in the statement from Becker that we've referred to, he goes on to talk about how Israel is very sensitive to the nature of why there's a convention about genocide and how this is all a legacy of the Holocaust, which the fact that you have to mention this 
is ridiculous. And the fact that you have to go and then defend yourself in the face of these accusations, it, it's sad. It's really sad to see that it, it's, it's almost as if the, the premise underneath some of these decisions the Israeli government has been doing and acting on with respect to UN and other bodies is we have to get everyone to, to every country, regardless of their character, we have to have them respect us and like us and give us their stamp of legitimacy. And I think that's a mistake. It matters, I think, that Israel is recognized and respected by good countries because they match us with the United States, United Kingdom, France, other countries that you might say are on the side of freedom. I don't think they need to be chasing the approval of the countries that are out to destroy them and the countries that are out to undermine them, such as South Africa, as in the case of this trial, so-called trial at the court. And I think it's it's an ongoing problem. And, and this has brought it to the surface in a way that I think it's, it's just really sad where Israeli soldiers are dying. Thousand plus Israelis have already been killed. Combat's ongoing. And they're standing in The Hague trying to defend the fact that they're not trying to decimate the Palestinian people. It, it, it's really grotesque. Uh, knowing that if if you take the thought experiment, what would it really look like if Israel was trying to decimate a whole population? It wouldn't look like this. It was just so obviously would not look like this. Uh, so the idea that you have to entertain this as an actual claim is embarrassing, I think, and, and ultimately morally uh, uh, corrupt on the part of the accusers. And then corrupt in a certain way in enabling your own destroyers, I think, which is part of what Israel is doing here. This, this idea of it uh, finding itself needing to uh, prop up these institutions and their claims. And you can see that the, so the, the consequence of treating this like some fine legal dispute, like a civil, case that, well, it's South Africa against Israel, um, and Israel is going to mount uh, defense of this, but that, like, there's some plausibility, a prima facie plausibility to South Africa's um, criticisms. That, just allowing that is to, it, it makes it seem like it, this is not just an explicit attack on Israel, but there's something here to defend. And the moment you do that, you've conceded a legitimacy that it does not deserve. And the fact that the whole history of the UN, that this is what it does, it makes the evil regime seem, well, they're more concerned with law and with justice and, and of figuring out really what's the right thing to do and then doing it. You saw this with Ukraine in the way that Russia justified its um, invasion of Ukraine, it's in part citing international law um, of what the UN has said and that, that there, well, there isn't there genocide going on in Ukraine. So this is, it's just self-defense on our part and we need to do this. And so it's a special military operation that we need to do. It, it was all couched under um, respect for international law Russia is a founding member of the UN. So like, how could it not be so concerned and preoccupied with doing what, well, what's legitimate within the sphere of international law? And all that makes, all that does is provides a cover for an aggressive, 
hostile, evil regime to seem like, oh, no, it's more civilized and it cares more about justice. And you, maybe you think, no, they're, they're, they've made too much of what's happening in the Donbass and it's not genocide and so on. But they're concerned with what, like, what legally is right and proper and just. And the, to do that is to enable your enemy. It's not just um, it's uh, the it's not just well it's it's concessionary and so on. It's making possible the very attacks on you. That when you make the, it when you prop them up, you're strengthening them. And the, it's the same that Israel's done with Hamas, and it's unfortunately what the U.S. did with Hamas as well. Of 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 we're going to bring elections to the Gaza Strip, and then and this is part of what it means that the good is so um, defensive, reactionary, has nothing positive to say. U.S. officials, Bush and others, acknowledged, yeah, they might vote in killers. And what are we going to do about that? Like, if we would do something, it would be to assert our own interest and it would be to assert what's good and what's evil. And no, you can't vote in a whole evil regime. And so they voted in Hamas. Hamas um, had a civil war with the Palestinian Authority. And like, what was the West reaction to that? It wasn't this is barbaric, um, evil, and it needs to be opposed. And we have to help Israel figure out, okay, so we, now we've enabled the whole evil regime to take power in the Gaza Strip. What do you do? Like we, and the whole Western world knows their army, knows they're building tunnels, knows they're using civilian um, population as shields. And what do we do? Basically nothing. And that's the way in which it's, it's we have no positive vision, nothing positive to say, nothing positive that we're trying to accomplish. Um, and in that, that that's just a recipe to embolden and embolden evil. Why don't we turn, because I think that example is, it fits neatly with what's happening with the Houthi attacks in the Gulf area and the Red Sea. And I the, the idea that the weakness and craven behavior of the good and the, the appeasing behavior of the good emboldens the evil and gives it courage and gives it motivation to, to grow and to be more assertive. So here, I think it's important to say a couple of things about who these, what this group is, who they're aligned with, the scale of what they've been doing, and, and then just to draw out the, the way this is threaded with the same observation that we've been making about the role of moral ideas for good and for evil and in empowering evil by the default of the good. So the, the Houthis are, uh, I, I, I hesitate to call them a, a movement exactly, but they have taken over parts of Yemen. Uh, they've been fighting against what was then the government. And the, the upshot is that they are aligned with Iran. They're not exactly Iran's puppet, but they're very strongly connected. Iran is funding them, giving them resources, training them. They're modeled and they're inspired by another organization that Iran has been very closely connected with, another proxy of Iran, which is Hezbollah. And what people often don't notice about the Houthis is that that's the name they have, which is derived from one of their leaders. But what they actually are, the way they think of themselves is the party of God, the group of the supporters of Allah, Ansar Allah, 
I forget exactly how it's translated, but it, they're basically a religious Islamic group. And they're a, a sect of uh, Shiite Islam. And the way they think of themselves is really revealing. So here's the slogan that they, they live by. Quote, God is great, death to the U.S., death to Israel, curse the Jews, and victory for Islam. Close quote. This is who the Houthis are. It's, it's not... It's easy for people to overlook this, but this is central to who they are. They are telling us who they are and they're showing us what they're about. They're about taking over this country. And now what we've seen in, uh, in a growing spate of attacks that have impacted at least 2000 vessels that are travel traversing these waterways, they are launching attacks and in intimidating uh, shipping and really having a significant impact on the routes that ships are able to take. And I think in one case, as you mentioned before, we went uh, started the podcast on car. They, there's at least one case where they hijacked a vessel and they paraded the people on board and they, they used it as a uh, kind of a, you called it a trophy as an example of their power. Important uh, detail here is just how pathetically weak they are militarily. And this is this has been true of a lot of the Islamist movement. So when we think of the Taliban compared to the US during the Afghanistan war, the Taliban were not nearly as powerful militarily. And we think of other groups like Al Qaeda versus the US or versus the alliance of countries that formed after 9-11, they were ridiculously weak militarily. But here is the crux of what is going on. The Houthis, feel powerful and they have reason to feel that way because of the reaction that they've gotten to their attacks. They've been emboldened. And I'm going to quote one of the statements. And I started collecting statements from Houthi uh, leaders to, to get a flavor of how they view themselves. And there was just too many. And I'm just going to try to pick one that I think is illustrative of how they view their position with respect to the United States, which is an, at least so far as an unequal superpower. Even the Chinese have not caught up to us in terms of the military strength that we have. And yet that military strength, that material strength is not matched, I think, in America's conduct by any kind of comparable moral confidence. And that's the crux. America is projecting moral weakness and Houthis are another uh, enemies of the United States. They recognize that and that gives them courage, that strengthens them. So here is a statement that I think captures this. A quote from one of their spokesmen. Our war is a moral war and therefore no matter how many alliances America mobilizes, our military operations will not stop. Continuing, participating in a coalition to protect the perpetrators of genocidal crimes is a disgrace in the history of the participating countries. If America had moved in the right direction, it would have obliged Israel to stop its crimes without the need to expand the scope of the conflict, end quote. So here is a, a, a group of Islamists lecturing the United States and other countries about how they conduct themselves with respect to their own uh, uh, interests in terms of the shipping and uh, their presence in the region, and uh, above all, in their support for Israel, to the extent that you regard America as supporting Israel. And I think there's a question of how supportive it's been. So these people are lecturing the free countries of the world to stop supporting another free country that's being attacked by Islamists. This is it's grotesque, just as a first reaction. But I think it's really telling that, that 
anyone this militarily weak could feel that they can put out a statement like this is symptomatic of how America has conducted itself in the region for the last 20 plus years and how it's conducting itself with respect to the Houthis in particular. Uh, so to me, this is, this is a, a disgraceful, embarrassing situation, but it's entirely self-made. And I, I think this is, uh, there've been a number of cases where the US offer, imposed ultimatums. And what did the Houthis do? They ignored them and they continued firing and they, they, they used even more sophisticated weapons more aggressive attacks. So I think this is a good uh, concretization of the point from earlier, which is when the good countries are appeasing, when they're exhibiting moral weakness and uncertainty and unpreparedness, what that does is creates a void that in, allows these evil groups and movements to feel that they can act and they can accomplish more than in reality they should be able to accomplish. It's giving them a, uh, an endorsement and, and, and an encouragement to be more violent, more aggressive. And part of what we telegraph, that is the Western free world, is th that our speech and our actions mesh. So what's, what is so galling in what is happening with the Houthis now is so they're part of the rhetoric the, the rhetoric which you which you quoted notice how much in moral terms it is their cause is moral they're about um the rule of Allah and Islam across the world the U.S. is evil Israel is evil the Jews are evil it's in terms of good and evil, it's perverse, their view of good and evil, but they're willing to state it and then they back it up with action. And the idea that you can have a, um, as you put it, the, like this militarily weak um, gang holding up global shipping through, uh, I mean, <clears throat> a, a, a I mean, they're, there's workarounds. They're expensive, time-consuming. They disrupt global commerce when they have to go around the tip of South Africa because they can't go through the Suez Canal. They've been bombing ships, taking uh, crews hostage, and we don't know what to do. <clears throat> and so, and notice the, the combination. We don't know what to do, and we will not call them out as evil. We might say they're terrorists, or there's even debate, there was debate in the Biden administration, or they were going to keep the Houthis on the terrorist um, list. But terrorism in this context is a whitewashing of uh, you, you're focused on the tactic and, oh, like if they killed some babies or something, like that, that's bad. But the cause that they're fighting for you do not talk about and you do not label as evil. They, so can you imagine um, the, a Western leader saying, the idea that you're trying to bring religion, in this case, Islam, into politics as the ruling force into politics, that's monstrously evil. Um, the, part of what the West has discovered is how monstrously evil is, is what the solution is, why you need a separation of church and state or religion 
and state that a religion cannot um, wield political power. It cannot have the instruments of force at its disposal. And to say that, so the whole cause animating this is evil in the way that they'll say the US is evil or Israel is evil. There's nothing like that. There's not even like that after Hamas's attacks. They could say, well, the Hamas, this is barbaric and so on. That what the cause that Hamas is fighting for, which they share with Hezbollah, which they share with Iran, is their condemnation of that cause as evil in the Western world. And it's conspicuous by its absence. And if you don't think from the, uh, so the, the policymakers in the West tend to think, oh, like this is a strength of ours that we're nuanced and we're negotiating and we don't come out with these statements or oh, the, the Hamas is evil. How are you gonna negotiate with them if you call them evil? Um, and the same with the Houthis. The, from the other side, what it projects is incredible weakness. So of saying that when they seize um, a cargo ship, that it's a trophy, it's a propaganda vehicle, and it's the combination of we speak openly about the cause we're pursuing, what we're after, why the rule of Islam is good, and why its enemies are evil, and we're going to fight the enemies to the death. We're committed to our cause, and look at the success that we can have when we're committed to our cause. And simultaneously, it's that the free world, they're not committed to anything. They don't defend anything. They don't speak of us as we're evil who have to be wiped out and so on. And that, it, to, to think of this as the, that that's a recruiting mechanism, that morality is on our side and the enemy might seem powerful, but they're so weak and demoralized that they can't speak in moral terms about their own cause and against us. That is used, and, and it's, I mean, in the end, it's rightly used as a recruiting. If we are so weak that we can't um, uphold our values and virtues and call them values and virtues and call the evil on the other side as evil, like why do you expect that you should be able to endure? One point that connects to this idea of it being a tool for recruitment is that it, among Islamist groups, one of the elements of their narrative for what they're about and how they draw people in is to point to the West as corrupt. And in, in their value framework, the corruption is the absence of Islam, the absence of piety to Allah. And so it's an infidels and unbelieving world, which, which is not wrong. It's, it's, that's part of what is true and what is good about the West. It's, it's put religion at the margins in many places and, and more so in others. But the manifestation of what you're describing them, the appeasing, the uncertainty, that actually reinforces their narrative in a strange way because it, it is corrupt. It is, it is a sign of weakness. So when the Houthis attack in America is figuring out, well, what do we actually do? We have all these weapons, but we're not really sure we're going to use them. Can we defend ourselves? Can we assert our interests? Maybe we should leave the door open for negotiations. At the surface level, that does look like corruption from the frame that they're presenting. So it, it feeds their narrative that, yes, they, they really are weak because the, the outward appearance is weakness. And so I, it's not that they're right that we're corrupt because from their value framework, but from the people who absorb it, 
it does lend it more strength. It does make it seem like they don't know what they're doing. They, they're easily defeatable if this is how they respond to us. And if we, the, uh, the Houthis can make them, can disrupt their economic system, we can uh, make them scurry. Well, look at how much more powerful it is when you are on the side of Allah. So there's this kind of background feature of how this directly feeds into some elements of their story of recruitment story, propaganda, and the idea that Allah is on their side, because look at what they can accomplish. I mean, I think we've seen this in other cases, but I think it's, it's a good to point out uh, for this incident too, because it's of such a large scale. Yeah, we saw it before 9-11, it's clear in bin Laden and the way they're recruiting and so on. And it's history repeating itself now. It's not in exactly the same form and in the, in the same players, but if you can abstract out a little bit, it's the same issue happening again. It's part of what is so um, monstrously uh like a monstrous failure, monstrous because we didn't have to fail in Afghanistan and Iraq in response to 9-11, but we did. And the, the part of the consequence is it's the, the kind of recruitment that happened before 9-11 happens um, and is happening again. <clears throat> and the, uh, I mean, here we're focused on the Middle East, but of thinking of it, of the, that the enemies of freedom, the enemies of Western, of the Western world and of Western progress, that when they look to see, can, does the West and, and America is the leading country of the free world, does it uphold and pronounce and talk about its own values? It's, they certainly are looking, as we've been talking about, in what we're doing and saying about what's going on in the Middle East, but they look in more broadly of what the, how the U.S. views itself and its willingness or unwillingness to uphold its own values. And I've seen the, of the China and Taiwan, and Taiwan's just had its elections and elected uh, William Lay, who's on the side of more Taiwanese independence and not with uh, reunification with China. The, the tiptoeing around this of the Western world that it would be, and, and I think for the leaders, too perverse if we didn't say anything and didn't offer any congratulations to Taiwan on their elections and a peaceful transition of power and so on. So there, there are some congratulations from the US, from the UK, from Australia. If you, I was reading one of the stories about them and how it is that, that the US and um, but the, really the whole Western world is trying simultaneously to congratulate Taiwan while making it seem like we're not really doing it. This is, through, this is unofficial. These are not real spokesmen who are saying this as part of it. These are through back channels. And of course, we still support a one China policy. And we're not throwing that into question. And the idea that, um, I mean, Taiwan, I mean, this again is perverse and unjust, that Taiwan is marginalized 
internationally, including like things like the UN, the international organizations. We saw this during the pandemic. They're marginalized because they're good, because they're freer than China, more prosperous than China. And to appease the Chinese evil regime, it's okay, well, we're not going to say Taiwan shouldn't exist and so on, but we won't treat them like a real country with um, uh, legitimacy. We won't have full or anything close to full diplomatic relationships with them. This is all like the sell out the good in the name of evil. And, and you could see, so to just contrast the Houthis, willingness to, con to, to pronounce, like, this is what we're for. We're for the rule of Islam. We view the uh, U.S. as an enemy and as evil. I don't know if you remember, this is prior to the, the election. This was over the summer, where it sort of slipped out that Biden, behind closed doors, called she a dictator. And this created, like, oh, really? Like, you think the leader of China is a dictator? He's so obviously a dictator. It's, I mean, he, it, it, if you looked up a different definition of a dictator, China's a one-party rule state. It's dictatorial. The, the, the government has massive power uh, over all areas of life. And, it, and it, it's, everybody knows he's consolidated his power to, again, be a dictator for life. And the idea that it's, oh, but can we say that he's a dictator? And then there was... Um, some, well, okay, well, I have to officially say, well, he sort of, Biden says, sort of, like, he technically fits the definition of a dictator, and, uh, but we have a great relationship and we had a great conversation with him. It's so backtracking from, we, you can't even call their system of government what it actually is, because that might offend them and really could we view it as evil. The, 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 so the, it's the simultaneously we dare not call evil as evil, and we dare not recognize Taiwan as good. That combination, anybody and, and any um, potential enemy looking at that thinks you, you have the, the idea that you can withstand any kind of opposition, you're going to crumble because you both, you can neither uphold what you supposedly think is good nor condemn what you supposedly think is evil. And like a per one rightly thinks a person in that state will um, be a pushover. The, the moment they face any kind of opposition, they're going to cave. And the, that one sees then the spread of evil around the world. It looks at the free world and says, like, this must be its nature and things are ripe for the taking. I think we've developed this theme in a number of contexts that I think would be good. We touched a bit on Ukraine and Russia, and I, I don't think we need to d delve into it further, but I do want to, before we pull the threads together, I just want to acknowledge that one exception or partial exception, at least so far in terms of rhetoric, has been the newly elected leader of Taiwan's. So I saw some statements from him saying what... I, I wish someone in Washington would say uh, that Washington is a much better place to say this, but at least he had courage so far and we'll see if it lasts to say, we're standing for a constitutional order. We don't want to be part of China. We don't recognize China's claims. And 
I think for politicians in Taiwan, there's, there's, a, there's a shadow over them. I think it's very scary for them to even say something like this. So for him to speak, even in these terms, which you might say are muted, but for Taiwan, I think this is pretty strong. That's something, I, I think that's the right direction to go in. I wish there were more of that and people coming to his defense because it, the claims, it's not even, it, it, China's claims for, towards Taiwan are similar to the South Africa case against Israel. It's not, you can't take them seriously. This is a, an illegitimate regime or a, a non-credible accuser making claims that are not valid. And just to start arguing about it is to lend legitimacy to the claim in the first place, which I think is a mistake, which is part of what we talked about with the genocide claim against Israel. And I think that something very similar is going on with China. So I don't want to argue about China's claims because I don't want to even give them credibility to begin with. Uh, so I, I think this is a, a small positive that this is the leader that has been elected in Taiwan. And that it seems like hopefully this is what the Taiwanese people are willing to stand by. And this is why they chose him, or at least a significant part of why he was chosen. I know there's many more reasons for why he was elected, but that seems like a big issue for them. Uh, so I, I found that to be encouraging uh, and hopefully and that, more, that's, more, yeah. that's part of what's so unjust about the international response and the response from the free world. This is, I think it's enormously good what happened in Taiwan that, as you said, the, this um, politician seems to seriously value Taiwanese freedom and independence, but he was voted in and he's voted in in the face of the intimidation from China. China's trying to intimidate the whole Taiwanese electorate that whatever you do, don't vote for him. And, so, and I mean, to say that intimidate means the threat of military invasion, if you do that. And in the face of that, they still voted for him. That takes real courage. And instead of um, the people on the side of the good really recognizing that, it's this muted response towards it because how we might offend China. And even the muted response, the Chinese uh, response or counter response was again, stridently um, moral in it. Like this is a travesty that people will do this in regard to Taiwan and it's just bringing war closer and so on. And it, it's, so it's again, it's the, the, the free world, it's this halting, appeasing, uh, response to something that actually good, and then the uh, an evil regime strident in its denunciation. I think what would be good to connect all these threads on car and to put a, an underline or punctuation mark around this theme that we've been developing about the power of moral ideas for good or evil and how the default of the good or the the, the weakness of the good and that empowers evil. I, I think it'd be good to bring out a, the quote you shared with me earlier from uh, Ayn Rand, where she captures this so evocatively. And I, if you want to read it out. Yeah, so th this is from Atlas Shrugged, uh, a speech in the story near the end of the novel. For if people haven't read it, or if there's some people who haven't read it, I'm not going to give away um, uh, some of the mystery and, and some spoilers. But so this is from late in Atlas Shrugged, one of the uh, heroes in the story says this, quote, when men reduce their virtues to the approximate, then evil acquires the force of an absolute. 
when loyalty to an unyielding purpose is dropped by the virtuous, it's picked up by scoundrels. And you get the indecent spectacle of a cringing, bargaining, traitorous good and a self-righteously uncompromising evil. Close quote. And uh, yeah, that unfortunately captures um, the what we're seeing around the world today, I think. Yeah, I think it'd be a good topic for another podcast to talk about why it is the good has come, has fallen so low. And I think there's a really profound observation in Ayn Rand's analysis of how our culture has reached this point where the good is cringing and bowing and appeasing. That's a topic for another time. We hope you'll join us for that. Let me, before we close, thank all of you for watching us and those of you who are uh, active in the super chat. We appreciate your support and thanks for the questions. We capture all the questions. We'll try to get to them maybe in one of our question episodes. Sorry we didn't get to it today, but we appreciate you being with us live. We'll be back next time. Thanks for joining us on New Idea Live. Until then, goodbye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.